Well, it's good to be back with you. I appreciate Tim filling in last week as we traveled down to the Expositor Seminary graduation. Certainly glad to be back with you and the, and the congregation here. And back in the Gospel of Matthew, as we come to Matthew chapter 13 this week, I was driving to work and listening to an interview this week, uh, something about cultural engagement or, or, or something like that. And the, the uh, interview, interviewee was commenting about how remarkable it was that Jesus was so engaging with the culture and never alienated anyone as he dialogued with them over the issues that confronted them. And I thought, what? I couldn't help but think of where we have been in chapter 12 of Matthew and chapter 11 of Matthew over the last several months, looking at Jesus' life and his ministry and seeing that while certainly there were times when the, cl- the crowds flocked to see his miracles and benefit from his power, when they heard him speak and teach about their lives and the issues that they were grappling with in their heart, there was as much hostility and alienation as anything. There was widespread rejection of Jesus, his ministry as it progressed from one month to the next and from year, one year to the next, as more and more people actually heard what he stood for and heard what he taught, they turned away from him. And this was the trajectory that we have been following along in Matthew's gospel, and particularly, as I said, the last two chapters of Matthew in chapter 11 and chapter 12, as it has intensified. And it is admittedly perplexing. I mean, anyone who studies Christ from a sincere standpoint has to be perplexed by the incomprehensible rejection. This was literally the most righteous person who ever walked on the face of the earth. He was filled with acts of kindness. His life was dedicated to deeds of service to other people. He was driven not by greed or ambition, but by an attention to the needs of others and a desire to help and to love. He, He defended the weak. He fed the hungry. His life was one of absolute integrity. Everything he spoke, he spoke what was true. He never once lied. He never once exaggerated beyond the boundaries. He never once falsely accused anyone. Every time he spoke, he accurately represented reality. But it was actually this truth that people hated and the truth that they rejected. They were glad to have his good deeds. They were happy to encounter his miracles, receive his help. But when it came to his words and what he stood for, he was steadfastly resisted. And it all kind of leads to sort of the penetrating question of why? Why? Why are people so resistant? Why do people find it so difficult To just believe what Jesus said. Why, after seeing everything that he stood for and everything that he did, why do they find it so hard to trust what he says? Why are people so filled with antagonism? Why are they so adamant about rejecting his pathway? And particularly for Israel, why... 
for someone who's so aligned with and fulfilled their own scriptures, why did they so utterly reject him? Why do so many people reject him, even in our own day? Why, we might frame it this way, why doesn't the gospel have more success everywhere it goes? This was a question not only on our own minds, it's a question on the minds of Jesus' followers in his day. I mean, they saw him. They loved him. They recognized that this wasn't just some other person. This was, this was God in human flesh. They recognized this was the Son of God as they watched him every day. They saw the way he lived and the way he carried and conducted himself. They saw the glory of God in human body. And it baffled them. It baffled them that other people weren't seeing what they were seeing. And they wrestled to understand why. What is it that causes people to reject this Savior? Well, that's really the topic of Matthew 13. The whole chapter is kind of about that theme. It's about the rejection of Jesus, and particularly the rejection of his kingdom. As you read through, it is a series of parables, a whole bunch of parables that mention the word kingdom in one way or another, but but what it's really about is about the kingdom being rejected, the kingdom not being accepted, the kingdom uh, being, if you will, hidden for a period of time as it moves quietly and softly in the hearts of men and isn't ultimately manifest until the end. It's about the kingdom at first rejected and then the kingdom triumphant that's what Matthew 13 is all about it's a a series of kingdom parables but we might even say kingdom rejection parables all helping us to understand this dynamic and it begins with what is perhaps the most well-known of all these parables we know it as the parable of the sower or you might call it the parable of the soils and, uh, and this is uh, given by Jesus to his crowd. At first, they don't understand until later when Jesus' disciples get him away privately and ask him to explain the parable, in which point he then gives them the insight that this parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, is really not about seeds and dirt. It's about the hearts of men. It's a, a picture that was familiar to them. It would have been familiar to them if they were, uh, if they were uh, I guess you might say, vocational farmers or if they farmed for a living or if they just kept a little garden in their backyard. Everyone in those days had some familiarity with the image. If they walked along the way, they would see the farmer with the bag cast over his shoulder and grabbing handfuls of seed and spreading it out along the furrows as they went. They all knew the kind of images that Jesus presents here, they all understood exactly what he was saying in terms of its material and physical elements. But these aren't about material, physical elements. These are about responses to the Word of God and particularly the condition of people's hearts as they hear the Word of God. We know that because down in verse 18, when Jesus gets around to explaining the parable, when he says, hear hear then the parable of the sower, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has sown in his heart. 
This is about the heart. This is about the condition of the heart, the condition of the hearer, the condition of the receiver of this message. And all of this helping his followers and helping you and I to understand as we are out and we are proclaiming, we are spreading the seed of the gospel, we are casting it everywhere we can, helping us understand what's going on in the hearts of people as they are as they are receiving the seed, as it's landing on them, as we were saying, as we would say. It, it is landing on them and finding their hearts in different conditions. And all of this explains for us why they respond the way they respond. This is what Jesus says in chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. He says, that same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea and great crowds gathered about him so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came down and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up. And since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a parable explaining rejection, really. Putting some context for his disciples around why this beloved Savior, this righteous man, this godly example who did literally everything right, everything right. The way he spoke was right. The way he ministered was right. The way he lived was right. And yet most people who heard him rejected. He's helping us understand as he was helping his disciples understand why. And it's important that we do that. It's important that we understand this. That we give consideration to what's going on in the hearts of people. In some cases may help us to be able to minister to them better. To be able to anticipate maybe some questions that they have. Or if nothing else, to help us to realize that the primary reason that people are rejecting the message that we're spreading has nothing to do with deficiency in the message itself. And it doesn't even have to do with some sort of defect in your methodology. It has much to do with what's going on in their heart. The condition of their heart. And in that vein, what I want to do in the next few weeks is to spend some time profiling as as much as we can, in as detailed a fashion as we can, profiling these four heart conditions, these four soils, if you will, these four hearers of the gospel, a thorough profile of, of each one of them, the typical response that they'll have, uh, not only as it is detailed here, but as we can connect it with everything else the scripture tells us about this kind of heart, this kind of response to the gospel, a profile of the reasons why people refuse to listen and ultimately turn away from Jesus. The first one that we want to deal with this week is 
the pathway or the walkway heart, the pathway soil that Jesus mentions in verse 4. He explains it to us as he gets down to uh, the section where he gives his disciples explanation. He explains it to us down in verse 19. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, this is what is sown along the path. So he's talking about those people whose hearts are like these pathways, these walkways, these hard-packed dirt, uh, uh, I guess you might say cut-throughs that were all over Israel. In those days, they all had their property and their farms and their fields, but they weren't separated like we often do today with fences or uh, nice boundaries. But what they would do is they would leave these narrow pathways that ran between the fields, and that's how you would navigate around the countryside in much of Israel. As a matter of fact, you may remember back at the beginning of chapter 12, as Jesus' disciples were going along the way on the Sabbath, going to the synagogue, they were plucking the heads of grain along the pathway. You think, well, what are they doing in the field on the Sabbath? Well, they weren't necessarily wandering out of the way. This is how you traveled everywhere you went. We went along these little pathways that ran along the fields, ran alongside the crops. And because they were the primary pathways, everyone walked down them. And so they became very, very hard packed, beaten down, uncultivated, not loosened, hard as concrete in some situations. The continual pounding of the traveler's feet, the dry climate, all that compacted the soil so that it was in some cases almost impenetrable. And as the farmer came and threw his seed along the way in his furrow, some of it uh, naturally would fall along the, along the sides and the edges of the field. They would fall on these pathways and they would sit there, the seed would sit there until the hovering birds came, ate it or people trampled it and all the seed was obliterated. This is a picture, Jesus says, of the hearts of some people when they hear the gospel. And we can think about it this morning really in two ways or two angles. First of all, the condition of their heart. And then secondly, the cause of that condition. The condition of their heart and the cause of that condition. Beginning, first of all, with the condition of their unresponsive heart. This is the person who hears the gospel and they are unconcerned about it, they're inattentive, they're indifferent, they are negligent, unresponsive, or sometimes even hostile to the message of the truth. They want nothing to do with what the Word of God says. Not interested in it at all. Their heart is so pounded down and so beaten down by the traffic of sin, they are completely desensitized to any interest in the truth. There's no sorrow for sin. There's no guilt or shame for their actions. There's no concern for God or for his commandments. And consequently, there's no repentance. It is a heart that is callous and indifferent and careless when it comes to the spiritual realities. Another way to say that is it's never broken, never softened by conviction or by sorrow, godly sorrow. 
Now, to some extent, this is the condition of every human heart. Every human heart, to some extent, is, is insensitive to the spiritual things. The Scripture tells us this, that our heart is born, or we're born with a certain kind of condition uh, in our heart that makes us dead. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. That image of deadness is an image of lack of responsiveness, doesn't respond to stimuli. You can, uh, you can poke it and prod it and twist it and do whatever you can, but a dead uh, person, a dead body is not going to respond. In the same way, we're not going to respond to spiritual things the way that we ought to respond. We're going to respond to what Paul says is the course of this world. It's going to be the thing that's driving and dictating our heart and mind as we go. But that spiritual deadness doesn't display itself the same way in, this, in, 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 in all people at the same time. For some people, they're going to be more uh, attentive to trying to cover up that deadness. They're going to look at religion as a pathway for uh, maybe establishing a reputation or maybe garnering favor with other people or maybe even bringing some sort of mental ease in their own mind. And so there's going to be a kind of spiritual pretense that mask over that spiritual deadness. But what Jesus is describing here is that group of people who aren't even interested in putting on the front. They are, they are just indifferent and they're unresponsive to the gospel message. Their hearts are hardened and they have no interest in concealing it or covering it up at all. This is open and unconcealed rejection. They hear the gospel and they're not struck by interest or curiosity or anything. They see it. They hear it. They can't grasp the glory that's found there. They miscalculate its accuracy. They undermine its blessings. They minimize its righteousness. They trivialize its splendor and they ignore its warnings. They don't understand the importance of righteousness and they certainly see no particular glory in the righteousness of Jesus. Somehow, they have concluded that the glorious message is actually foolish. Second Corinthians, excuse me, First Corinthians two fourteen. This is the mind of the natural man. the The things of the of God are foolishness to them. Their their heart and their mind is covered up with a kind of intellectual and spiritual blindness so that the life-giving message is actually lifeless to them. In fact, these hard-hearted hearers hold the biblical truth to be suspect. Their lack of understanding doesn't come from the message itself. It's not because the message is deficient. It's not because there's some, you know, gap in the, uh, in the grammar or some sort of missing piece in the background, the, the, the lack of responsiveness comes from within them. That's the point of the parable. It's the same seed, it's the same sower, but a different response. It's the condition of their heart that determines the response, not the quality of the message. And there are these people who have let the foolishness of their unbelief become so dominant in their mind that they have 
desensitized themselves to spiritual things and that senselessness to spiritual things has now become hardness. Sin is ignored, their, their conscience is silenced, guilt and conviction are never permitted away or a corner in their life so that their heart grows harder and harder. Now all of this, you need to understand, this hardness of heart to spiritual things, this resistance to the message of God, all of this is really the flip side of a mind that has become increasingly enamored with its own self-sufficiency. Instead of beginning with God as a place of truth, these hard-hearted listeners actually begin with themselves, their own opinions as the place of truth. This is the essence of really what the Bible calls a fool in the wisdom literature. A fool in the Old Testament is presented as hard-hearted, unreceptive, unresponsive, unteachable, steadfastly resisting the truth. In fact, the, the Proverbs present them as despising or being repulsed by the truth. Proverbs 1, a fool despises wisdom and instruction. In fact, they, they can't even imagine themselves. They, they, they can't even fathom themselves being so mistaken such that the proverb says a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows of the fool. They might suffer the consequences of their actions a hundred times over and they just cannot connect the dots that the pain and the suffering that they're going through is, is from their own foolishness. In fact, the word fool is interesting. Chesil is the word. It's, it's actually a word for hope or, or, or sometimes translated confident. But you see, in the life of a fool, it has become overconfidence, particularly overconfidence in their own opinion. They are self-sufficient and therefore resistant to outside counsel. Their hard-heartedness to the truth is rooted in their own pride. It's an infatuation with their own mind and their own thoughts that makes them so resistant to the truth. So Proverbs twenty-eight twenty-six: whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Proverbs eighteen two: a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. So they're happy to talk all day long about their own opinions, their own thoughts, their own mind. They just don't want to hear counsel from anyone else and particularly from God. And so he's impatient, the fool is, with anyone who attempts to point them to the truth. Proverbs 12, the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. He's right in his own eyes. He's become exalted in his own opinion. He's on the pathway to the scoffer who we read in 1512, a scoffer does not like to be reproved. He will not go to the wise. The foolish is already on the pathway to the scoffer. So many people have hearts like that. You shower and shower and shower them with seeds. You, you sit next to them sometimes in church. You send them podcasts and sermons to listen to. You give them books to read. You talk to them about what God's do. You just shower them and shower them with these seeds and it just sits there. It never penetrates their hard heart. Their heart has become resistant to the truth because it has become enamored in its own pride with its own opinions. 
And so there's no reverence. The fool would rather be comforted in their own illusions than to actually do the hard work of seeking out the truth. Proverbs 17, 24, the discerning sets his face toward wisdom, but the eyes of the fool are on the ends of the earth. That is to say, just sort of this illusionary, imaginary world that you can't even see. Just kind of gazing out there, unable to do the hard labor of concentration that it takes to bring your mind in alignment with God and with His Word, with the truth of Scripture, with the reality of God's existence. They're resistant to the truth. They have no heart for it. They want to be considered wise. They want other people to listen to them. In fact, the Proverbs describes the fool like a street vendor who puts out all of his folly on the, on the uh, uh, sidewalk there for everyone to see. Every prudent man acts with knowledge, but a fool flaunts his folly. He just spreads it out there. He wants everyone to hear all of his opinions and to know all of his ways, even though in a month or a year or so, it's all going to be shuffled and different because none of it has any foundation. And they're always just kind of putting out there their foolishness for display. But their complacency towards the truth is tragic. Proverbs one thirty two says the simple are killed by their turning away. And the complacency of fools destroys them. Their unwillingness to think deeply about spiritual things, their unwillingness to set aside their own opinions and to, to heal their heart before the Lord, that complacency towards the truth destroys them. And at the heart of it, the Scripture says, at the heart of it is really an unwillingness to recognize their guilt and their need for God. Proverbs 14, 9, the fool mocks at the guilt offering. They mock at the notion of sin. They mock at the idea of the gospel and their need for forgiveness. Doesn't want to be bothered by that. Doesn't want to hear it. They close their mind to it. And again, this is not because there's a deficiency in the message. The message stands on its own. The seed of the gospel is powerful. It spreads and it spreads and it does its work in all kinds of places. It's not the deficiency in the message that's the problem. It's their heart that will not allow it to penetrate into them. And all of this really unearths the flawed thinking in their mind, the, the reasoning that begins with their own opinions, begins with their own pride they they without admitting it they have become their own god their own ultimate authority their own decider about what is true and what is false what is reality and what is not and when that happens the scripture says your whole thinking process becomes characterized by darkness hardness ignorance Because you've now narrowed your focus, not to the expansive omniscience of God, but just to the limited scope 
of your own personal experience. As I said, this is somewhat the place of every person born in this world. Harold Honer says the original purpose of the mind was to be able to comprehend God's revelation. But due to the fall, a person's mind is unable to accomplish this goal. Hence, the futility of their minds, a phrase used by Paul in Ephesians 4, conveys the idea of not being able to perceive the revelation of God for which it was designed. And thus, its moral attitude and disposition presents it from achieving its goal and proper moral decisions that are necessary for life. The wheels are turning. There are things going on for sure in the mind of this hard-hearted individual, but they're futile. They're futile. They're not leading to sound and secure ends, blessed ends. And when they do that, when they begin all reasoning, when they begin all rational thinking, when they get, begin all sort of Uh, all sort of argumentation when they begin with their own perceptions of the world as the starting point rather than God's revealed realities about the world. When they begin with their own perceptions, the scripture says that their moral foundations, their reasoning process is darkened. They cut themselves off from the truth. They become spiritually blind and they no longer have firm footing on which to stand so that now everything that they're building is built on the shifting sand of personal opinion under their feet. They slowly lose the ability to discern what is good and what is evil, what is right, And what is wrong, what is real, and what is false. And so the hard-hearted person rejects the truth. And when they do that, they begin with their own mind. And when they begin with their own mind, all their pursuits and all their goals are inherently self-centered. And they find, again and again, the disappointment of where that leads. They construct their dreams and their aspirations and yet their yearning desires or restless hearts never satisfied. This is a hard heart. And its outcome is futility and aimlessness and meaninglessness. Why is it that way? Well, part of it is the natural condition in which we're born, but Jesus also indicates something else. He gives us the cause here, the cause of their unresponsive heart. In verse 19, he says, when the seed of the gospel is sown in their hearts, the evil one comes and snatches it away. The evil one comes and snatches it away. So the hardness of their heart is, is there as a natural consequence, but it's accentuated or, or we might say it is further deprived of the truth by the activity of Satan. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us how he does this. He just tells us that he does it. He doesn't take us into the mechanics or the practical steps that Satan follows. We can pick that up, however, not only from personal experience, but also from other places of Scripture. Because as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11... We're not ignorant of his schemes and his devices. 
We're not ignorant of his schemes and his devices. As a matter of fact, right there in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he is indicating one of the chief devices of the enemy that is ripping at the fabric of the, of the Corinthian church, which is just simply unforgiveness. Unforgiveness, which was dividing the church, but even more so in the hearts sometimes of the unbeliever, there's a kind of bitterness There's a kind of lingering hard feeling that they might have toward someone else, maybe toward a Christian, maybe toward the church. They've allowed some hurt and some pain to enter in. And now, because of that, every time someone begins to talk to them about the truth, they immediately swipe it out of the way and focus in on just that hurt, just that unforgiveness, just that bitterness that's there. And by doing that, Satan just plucks away the word. He plucks away the seed of the gospel again and again and again. Their their heart is hardened and packed down by the continual, continual beating, I guess you might say, of feeling that hurt and that pain as they dwell on it again and again and again. There are other devices. We know Satan is a deceiver. Scripture tells us that. He delights to deceive. He is a liar by nature. In fact, 1 Timothy chapter 4 says, The Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful doctrines and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars. So there are going to be people who come along and they're going to spread lies. They're going to spread falsehoods. There's going to be false doctrines and false teachers through false religions. But even on top of that, there's going to be false ideologies and false philosophies that are going to be spouted from every avenue that Satan can find that is going to be intentionally designed by him to dupe unsuspecting people and and snatch away the gospel as soon as it lands on their hardened hearts. This is kind of warfare that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 when he talks about how we're doing battle with arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. He goes on to talk, to, talk about those, those ideas that are disobedient or we might say defiant to the doctrine of Christ. People are in the battle. They just don't realize it. Satan is there snatching away the word every time it lands because they immediately turn their heart and attention to whatever kind of trendy, popular, fascinating, well-respected opinion has taken control of their mind. These aren't even necessarily well-reasoned opinions. It's not as if they are... Opinions that themselves are internally even consistent. In fact, they're inconsistent. They just sound impressive. Like C.S. Lewis has his famous demon screw tape writing in a letter to his young protege Wormwood. He writes this. He says, it sounds as if you suppose that your argument was the way to keep your victim out of the enemy's clutches. That might have been so had he lived a few centuries earlier At that time, humans still knew pretty well how a thing was proved and when it was not. And if it was proved, they really believed it. They still connected thinking with doing and were prepared to alter their way of life as a result of the chain of reasoning. But 
What with the weekly press and other weapons that we have largely taken control of, we've altered that. Your man has now become accustomed ever since he was a boy to a dozen incompatible philosophies dancing about inside of his head. He doesn't think of doctrines primarily as true or false, but as academic and practical or outworn or contemporary or conventional or ruthless. Jargon, says Screwtape, not argument, is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Just fill him, fill his mind with all the chatter that goes on in all the conversations and all the friendships around him. That's really all you need to do. In fact, he goes on, Screwtape does. He says, by the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason. And once it's awake, who can foresee where the result will be? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have strengthened in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream. Teach him to call it real life, but never let him ask him, never, never let him ask what he means by real. That's the kind of spiritual warfare that's taking place. Satan is not interested in truth. He never has been. The philosophies that he plants in people's minds have nothing to do with truth. They have nothing to do with what is real. They have everything to do with distraction and jargon and deception. In an older work by Puritan Thomas Brooks, he writes a little volume known as Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he notes a couple of Satan's key devices. Number one, he says, number one device to present the bait and hide the hook. Brooks says, to present the golden cup and hide the poison, to present the sweet and the pleasure and the profit that may fall upon the soul by yielding to sin, but hide from the soul the misery that will certainly follow. He says, Satan with ease puts fallacies upon his golden baits and then leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. He promises the soul pleasure and profit and honor, but he pays the soul with the greatest contempt and loss and shame. Device number two, paint sin with virtue's colors, he says. Which he explains saying this, Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress, the soul would fly from it rather than yield to it. And therefore he presents it to us not in its own proper colors, but painted and gilded over with the name and the show of virtue that we may more easily be overcome by it. And so, covetousness and greed become good industry and hard work. Drunkenness becomes a good time and sweet fellowship. Pride is presented in the name of perfectionism or always doing things the right way. And on and on and on. Until sin, little by little, hardens the heart. 
As Brooks says, the most dangerous vermin are often found under the fairest of flowers. Device number three, extenuate and lessen sin, or we might say minimize sin. It's just a little lust. It's just a little pride. It's just a little lie. It's just a short indulgence. But as as Brooks points out, sin is always, always leading somewhere. It doesn't stop with just a little. It's like Psalm 1. It first walks in the counsel of the wicked before it finally settles into standing in the pathway of sinners. And it ultimately takes its seat in the seat of scoffers. Just a little leads down that pathway, he says. Or number four, Satan's device by showing the soul the sins of the best people and hiding from the soul their sorrows and repentance. Basically, justifying your actions by the failures of other people. You nitpick those who are around you who want to proclaim the gospel to you by pointing out what that might have been their weaknesses and their failures without ever actually bringing up the subject so that you can hear the grief and the sorrow the pain that has been brought about by that, the bitter lessons that had to be learned. Or looking into Scripture and finding great men like David and his lust, or Abraham and his lies, or Peter and his cowardice, and beginning to assume that you are then not so bad. You're not sinning as much as these great men. Brooks has a number of others, a whole book full of this devices of Satan by which he grabs our hearts. And he takes hold of people and he pounds their heart into the hardened dirt of resistance. Of course, the whole point of this The whole point of all this is that this isn't broken soil. This isn't plowed and furrowed and tilled soil. This is the soil that hasn't been dug up, turned over, churned. That's exactly what God requires a broken and a contrite heart, a heart that has been churned by its own sin, a heart that has been plowed by the miseries that is brought into its own life, a broken and a contrite heart cries out to God, sin has shattered me. Sin has destroyed me. Sin has plowed me under and broken me. A broken and a contrite heart cast itself on God for mercy and grace. It's broken, and because it's broken, it receives the seed of God's Word, and it can be planted. And no matter what the hard pack had been in the past, no matter how much trodden they had been by sin in the past, no matter how much beating 
you've taken from your own shame, no matter how long you've been trampled by the enemy. When the ground is broken, the seed can sprout. When the heart confesses, God can work. When the broken and contrite heart comes to the Lord, finally, finally, letting the word penetrate, God can restore. Father, we are mindful that we are around people every day with these hardened, trodden hearts. We don't know all the reasons, but I pray that you would give us the gentle patience, the generous spirit to keep pouring out seed, casting it where we can, pouring it out on their heart, though we see it taken up again and again by the enemy. May we never tire, lest perhaps one day there is a crack There is a seam and a seed falls through and somehow, someway, it breaks forth in life. Lord, we pray that your gospel would do that, that it would penetrate today, even the hard hearts that are here today who hear a message like this and continue to resist it. We pray that finally you would show your mercy that you would let your seed fall through, that you'd let it sprout forth and bring life, forgiveness, and eternity. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.